Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm uh, sorry to uh, interrupt uh, what looks like a, uh, an exciting uh, lunch here. Everybody seems to be enjoying themselves. I always hate to be the one to get up and interrupt a uh, great conversation. But uh, before I introduce the speaker, I just want to say two things very quickly. Uh, one is uh, I am delighted, uh, having served for many years on the board of the World Affairs Council, I think I've known Jim Falk, since he first came to town, and uh, we are uh, always thrilled to be able to collaborate with the World Affairs Council. I hope we're going to be able to do much more of it. Um, I think the two organizations do complement each other very well, an academic center and basically an organization that reaches out to people all around the Metroplex here, and I I just want to tip my hat to Jim and what he and his colleagues have accomplished uh, in the years since you've been here. It is truly extraordinary. This is one of the most dynamic World Affairs Councils in the country, and I think they've even won a number of prizes and awards for this. Uh, I'm no longer on the board, so I don't feel like I'm, I'm uh, just uh, beating my own uh, drum here, but uh, it is an amazing organization. Uh, I also t- wanted to take just one uh, moment to recognize a, uh, another distinguished colleague and now uh, a friend of, of, of a number of years, uh, Jim Lindsay, who's up visiting from the Strauss Center for International Law and Security at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Uh, I think Jim is up here uh, uh, on a little fundraising trip. We're going to keep an eye on him uh, while while he's here in Dallas-Fort Worth. But uh, he came over, and we were exchanging notes about uh, about running centers, academic centers. So, Jim, we're delighted to have you here. Jim, I'm sure we'll be ready to to weigh in. Uh, He is also one of the great scholars of American foreign policy and international relations. So, But it is... um, a true pleasure to be able to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. C.M. Brown, uh, who is the acting director. I'm on sabbatical, although I've come out of my, uh, my hiding here to, uh, to introduce him today. Uh, he's the acting director of the center and uh, director of studies in the Tower Center and holds the Tower Chair uh, in international security and international politics. Uh, he is one of the great scholars of international relations in the United States today. He specializes in U.S. foreign policy. He's written many great books. I would highly recommend his uh, classic book, Faces of Power, uh, uh, written years ago, which is about to go into a new edition with Columbia Press. Um, uh, I could go on and on. I always tease him because he told me the most successful book he'd ever written in his career uh, was a book uh, he wrote right at the beginning of his career about California politics. Uh, in which he made uh, a lot of money as one of the co-authors. I think every kid in California had to read that book at one point. Um, again, he's written w- widely on many, many issues. Uh, before joining the SMU faculty, he was the Lawrence Wien Professor of International Cooperation at Brandeis University. And I'm, I'm happy to say in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, I was colleagues with CM there. He was my chairman. Uh, a very good chairman and, and a great colleague for those many years that we were in Boston together. He still serves as a senior advisor in the MIT Security Studies Program. Uh, he's a senior fellow in the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School, Ph.D., University of Chicago, star-studded career at the RAND Corporation, 
uh, the Carnegie Endowment, where I think he actually ran their program on the Soviet Union at one point, uh, the Brookings Institution. Uh, he's worked at the Departments of Defense and State, so he's not just an ivory tower kind of guy. He's a practitioner, uh, someone who knows foreign and defense policy from the inside. Uh, I've already said something about his publications. The most recent book was, uh, or uh, the, the penultimate book, was titled The Illusion of Control, U.S. Foreign Policy After the Cold War. Today he will be speaking about a brand new book, uh, which is entitled The Higher Realism, A New Foreign Policy for the United States. And some of you, I see, have already procured a copy. He will be signing those copies for you outside where you can purchase one uh, after the lunch today. So I'm delighted and honored to be reunited with CM here at SMU, and I want to, you to join me in giving him a big Dallas welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I had prepared about a 15-pager that I was going to use in my address, but then I thought, I swore it myself, that uh, no, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to give you a summary of the book. You've got to read the book. <laughs> but rather, um, I'm going to give you bookends, that is, at one end, I'm going to try to explain to you the basic philosophical premises of the book, and at the other end, talk about some grand strategy implications. Okay. Uh, then, perhaps, you will uh, want to uh, open the book and even actually read it. <laughs> so um, I'm going to uh, be as interested in what uh, I might say as perhaps you are, because <laughs> I haven't heard these remarks before. <laughs> uh, thank you both, Jims, for giving me this opportunity uh, to uh, participate in the dialogue. I don't regard writing a book as uh, something that then is, uh, uh, is, is in tablets forever. I, I regard it as just part of a dialogue. It's one vehicle of having a dialogue. So that's what this is for me here uh, today. Uh, now. Um, let me reflect, however, a little bit um, on um, the uh, Obama appointees or the designated appointees of President-elect Obama, Obama in foreign policy and national security policy. Um, they deservedly um, have impressed people as uh, a team of um, tough-minded pragmatists. Um, Hillary Clinton at State. Uh, General James Jones at NSC, and certainly uh, Robert Gates over in defense. Now, um, they are deservedly uh, pragmatists, uh, called pragmatists. Uh, there's a kind of a similarity between that and what we call realists in the field of international relations. I think it's revealing, however, that other contenders for those positions particularly state and NSC, namely Susan Rice, uh, also uh, uh, the governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, um, although they were contenders for those positions, got other positions. I think that's telling with respect to the kind of administration in national security and foreign affairs that the president-elect uh, wants to start out with. Now, so I say two cheers for him on that. I'm holding back on the third cheer. Okay. 
because although we need pragmatism and realism, I would not like to see pragmatism and realism be subordinated to vision. Because I think what we need in, the, in US foreign policy and national security policy in the world today is also a vision that gives us orientation for our pragmatism and realism. What are the purposes? Where are we heading? Okay. Um, to know how to do cost-benefit analysis is fine. Um, pragmatic type of analysis is fine. But then you have to know how to value the outcomes that you're assessing, as well as the side effects that you're assessing. And that requires vision. It requires a broader concept of national interests and world interests that we have not heard very much about yet. Okay. Uh, pragmatism without that becomes kind of damage limiting. Okay. Uh, making sure that the things in motion that look like they're going to produce results that we don't need are taken care of. It, the, the metaphor of bailout is a good one. Uh, you know, the ship needs to be bailed out, yes. Uh, that's urgent. But we also have to think about why it's leaking water. And perhaps major new construction is needed. Now, we are in one of those times when the president-elect tells us that uh, things are likely to get worse before they get better, at least with respect to the domestic economy. And looking at what's going on in the world, we can also um, take that position. Um, indeed, things could be worse. Hearing myself say that reminds me of a story that uh, came down in my family. Uh, my progenitors uh, from uh, Lithuania, and uh, my father brought it over here when he migrated to this country, and he was fond of telling me this it could be worse story. Um, in uh, a village uh, some distance from the capital of Vilnius, uh, the town gossip met the town optimist in the town square. And the town gossip said, have you heard what happened to our friend Herschel? No. Well, I'll tell you, it's not very good. He came back from his buying trip to Vilnius on Friday night, and he found his wife in bed with another man. And the town optimist says, well, that is not very good. Not good at all, but it could be worse. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I haven't told you the whole story. He comes back on Friday night. He finds his wife in bed with another man. He pulls a gun on that man. Oh, that is serious, he said. That's very serious. Still, it could be worse. Let me finish my story. He comes back on Friday night. He finds his wife in bed with another man. He pulls a gun on him. He shoots that man. He kills him. The town optimist says, well, uh, I hadn't realized that it was really that bad. But still, it could be worse. You're impossible. You carry your optimism to such extremes. Look what I'm telling you. I'm telling you our friend Herschel. 
comes back on Friday night. He finds his wife in bed with another man. You say it could be worse. How on earth could it be worse? He says, well, he says he could have come back on Thursday night, and then he would have found me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, things are, from today's vantage point, in the world at large also, uh, not going very well. In Iraq, perhaps it can be salvaged. In Afghanistan, if you hear the behind-the-scenes talk, it's going to be very, very difficult to make that any kind of a success. And then all of the other things that are going on, our inability really to uh, get Iran off of its course of probably building a nuclear weapon. Uh, again, trouble with North Korea. What's happening in Somalia, terrible with respect to, again, an impending genocide, let alone uh, the things that are making the headlines, namely the pirate ships off the coast of, uh, of Somalia. All over the world, it looks like there is chaos. And where is the concept of getting some kind of control over that chaos. Okay. Here's where it appears to me uh, we need a new kind of realism. Okay. Everybody, of course, claims that they are a realist. We want to do things that will work, that are consistent with the realities. But in our field, uh, the two gyms here know this, um, realism has a special meaning. Um, I usually write it with a capital R to indicate that it's different than ordinary realism. The realists start from the assumption, it's a pessimistic assumption, that the world at large, unlike domestic societies, is inherently anarchic, inherently anarchic. There is no central mechanism for control. Oh, you do have some institutions that have been set up. But they are what the realists will call epiphenomenal. They simply reflect the power relations. And uh, they can't do anything more than the big powers want them to do anyway. And if they try to do anything more institutionally, the big powers will pull out. These institutions will collapse. The world is inherently anarchic. The competition for who gets what, when, and how internationally is very much affected by the distribution of coercive power, of military power. And that is the way the world works. That's normal for world affairs. As Clausewitz put it, war or force is a continuation of politics by other means. Now, we don't accept that for those political entities that humankind has evolved to control violence, okay. to have some kind of a just um, mechanism for determining who gets what and how, namely the nation state. Now, if a nation state seems to be anarchic in this sense, okay, that force is the visible arbiter of who gets what, when, and how, it would be regarded as a failed state. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Whereas internationally, that norm 
of determining who gets what, when, and how on the basis of the distribution of coercive power is accepted. That's normal. And that's a starting premise for most people who call themselves realists. Okay. I'm a realist also. Okay. I accept that as a starting premise. But I depart from the conventional realists in accepting it just as um, heart attacks are normal, okay, we don't have to accept them. We can work to alter the conditions in ourselves that make for the breakdown, the serious breakdown. The international system, although it is normally run by this distribution of power, doesn't have to be that way. There can be efforts to transform it. Now, the conventional realists are very skeptical of any of those efforts. Here's where I depart from the conventional realists, what I call higher realism. Tries to put forward a concept that can organize our thinking but also grand strategies for transformation, for transformation of a system that needs to break out of this older form in which the only reliable organizers of human activity, particularly when it gets nasty, are the nation states. They are the ones that have a monopoly over legitimate violence. Okay. But that's not good enough today because What's happened, particularly as a result of the technological revolutions in very many fields, what's happened is that the borders of the nation states are becoming very porous. We know that. We hear that all over, that they're becoming very porous, that they can't necessarily control what comes in, whether it's good services, people, or money, and what goes out. That their ability to have a monopoly of force within at least their jurisdictions has broken down as a result of some of the technologies that exist where you can disrupt a whole economic system. Indeed, uh, a few people can do this who are quite brilliant with the use of, of cyber technology okay, can even do that. Um, the system of international interdependence okay, of the great mobility of people, things, money, so on. That system we see as challenging the old model of what world politics is like. Okay. Um, the challenge is to build into that system political arrangements, norms, and forms that are congruent with the patterns of interdependence that are developing. Okay. Now, this means that we reconceptualize what the conventional realists have said has to be the primary policy imperative of the nation state. 
and that is you pursue the national interest above everything else, above special interests, okay, above regional interests within the state, but you, you pursue the national interest. Foreign policy officials consider that that is their mission, whereas there might be a lot of contending between special interests within the country. They need to protect the whole nation in order to fulfill the constitutional obligation okay, of ensuring domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense, and securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. But for the realist, okay, ourselves and our posterity is the fundamental imperative. Okay. For higher realism, we need to break out of that. Higher realism says that we, in this world, cannot be satisfied simply with pursuing the national interests, but we must also pursue the world interests. Because the national interest has become inextricably bound up with world interests. What then are these world interests that in the national interests we have to organize our thoughts and organize our grand strategies to pursue. We need to start thinking about them, articulating them, factoring them into the assessment, the pragmatic assessments of comparing various policy options for their effectiveness and their costs. Okay. World interest one, the cardinal world interest is to ensure the healthy survival of the human species. The sine qua non of all other interests, challenged today, challenged by the kinds of weapons that we have developed, where if only a fraction of the 20,000 nuclear weapons that exist could bring about a nuclear winter if, a, if a, even a fraction of them were used. That could make it almost impossible for human life and other life to survive in a healthy condition. Now, this realization, particularly as the quest for nuclear weapons um, has uh, spread around the world, particularly as we're at a juncture when it might be that what heretofore has been a restricted club of nuclear weapons opens up and many other countries join. If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, is Saudi Arabia going to be far behind? I think obviously not. If North Korea uh, pursues a robust nuclear weapons program, Japan will also want to develop a nuclear weapons program. And this will then become an essential part of the arsenal of every country in the world okay, that feels it needs to provide for its own defense, particularly in a world like today's world, in which you can't really depend upon allies, where your friend on one issue is going to be your adversary on another issue. You have to have your own means of self-defense to at least equalize uh, your ability to bring terrible destruction upon 
any neighboring adversary that would try to take advantage of you. And this new realization has brought some of the conventional realists, some of the outstanding conventional realists, like Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State George Shultz, former Secretary of Defense William Perry, former Chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee Samuel Nunn, um, to say that the United States must also have as one of its vocations in the world today, a very serious vocation, of ridding the world of nuclear weapons. Less than a generation ago, that would have been dismissed as naive, as utopian. Now, hard-headed realists are moving in the direction of higher realism to say that this must be done. Another threat to the well-being of the human species, global warming. Yes, there are some debates about it, but even if some of their more modest predictions are allowed to uh, materialize in the decades ahead, we know that essential ecologies around the world will be in jeopardy. We know that disease will spread more than it should. We know that the healthy survival of the human species will be put in jeopardy. A related world interest, world interest number two, reducing the role of force in world politics. Does force have to play the prominent role that it has been of the, as the arbiter of who gets what, when, and how? If we continue along that road with lethal capabilities, whether they are nuclear or other WMD or not, but increasingly lethal capabilities coming into more and more hands with a open international arms bazaar now in which some 200 nation states, but thousands also of national political movements, non-governmental groups, terrorist organizations around the world can have that kind of capability. The prospects for any kind of a decent world order, the prospects for conducting normal commerce that a country like the United States needs, normal international commerce, will be very severely interfered with. There are ways of trying to move away from this dependence on force as the principal arbiter of who gets what, when, and how. The United States itself, as the most well-endowed with arms, can begin to lower the decibel level of its diplomacy that puts force up front, that is, brings people into power who will openly reiterate the Clausewitzian formula that force or war is the continuation of politics by other means. The notion that diplomacy and force are necessary twins in the pursuit of the national interest really needs to be broken, that connection. The resort to force 
ought to be regarded as a failure of diplomacy rather than simply a tool of diplomacy, a normal tool of diplomacy. Now that means a different kind of mindset. It means that rather than emphasizing coercive pressure against those who are trying to do what we don't want them to do, that we should be availing ourselves of the methods and techniques and processes and institutions of conflict resolution and conflict control, mediation, arbitration, more than we have. There's a lot of talent in that field that comes out of the domestic arenas where that is important to do, labor management relations. And we have not adequately exploited those talents and put them to work in the international arena. Now, in my book, I elaborate this much more, and I'd be glad to talk with you in, in, in the discussion period here as to how that might be pursued. Another obvious world interest is maintaining a well-functioning global economy. We know that as a result of uh, the financial crisis, which has been spreading around the world. But this also has to be coupled to the world interest of alleviating terrible poverty and disease. If it is not, if indeed the successes in the productivity of the world economy correlate with increasing inequalities, correlate with the fact that approximately 20% of the human beings on this earth, um, roughly 2 billion, are living below basic subsistence level. If that is the case, the prospects for avoiding populist reactions to a free international market are very small. The prospects of avoiding demagogues coming to power in very many countries of the world of more and more failed states and failing states become smaller. We don't hear very much except some rhetorical statements that the Millennium Development Goals um, that were designed a number of years ago to have the amount of poverty, to reduce it. Um, we don't hear very much except a reiteration of those goals, but when it comes to resources in back of that, in back of those goals, it's paltry. Now, some statespersons have committed themselves to taking very seriously what others only take seriously at the rhetorical level. Tony Blair, for example, has made this one of his principal callings after retiring from British politics, as well as working to find ways of resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. These are his main preoccupations today. Another world interest, which I talked about briefly, and that is arresting disturbances to vital ecologies around the world. Planet Earth as a whole is really a commons. Okay. The 70% of the Earth that is not under the management of particular nation states, namely the oceans, okay, 
don't have an adequate management regime. Okay. We have some fisheries commissions okay, that are trying to set rules, but this is kind of low-level priority in the grand strategy of the United States. While there is a deterioration of the basic ecological relationships around the world that are taking place. Now, the fish know that um, they don't understand or they, when they are in Ecuador's waters rather than Peru's waters. The migratory birds that are affected by all kinds of assaults on the ecology sustain them. No. Okay. They know what they can't know, and that is when they are crossing into other jurisdictions. But we have not yet developed governance procedures to take care of these ecologies that are larger than the nation states, that exist in those regions of the world and even globally, where the fundamental interdependence of these ecologies is bringing about deterioration. The biologists are telling us that this is affecting the fundamental chains of life from microorganisms up the food chain and that we are experiencing drastic extinction of species. That delicate interdependence that needs to be allowed to flourish and cannot be assaulted uh, as much as we have been assaulting needs to be managed. We need to start talking about global governance. I'm not talking about world government. Okay? I'm talking about devising processes and institutions that are congruent with this deep material interdependence of peoples. Another world interest is promoting democracy and human rights. Now, this is controversial to many people, particularly after uh, our fling at aggressive neoconservative interventions around the world. But there is a world interest in making sure that people who are now exposed by the modern media, who are now exposed to an awareness of different ways of life and are yet experiencing brutal repression of their claim to self-determination, of their claim not to be governed by people who are tyrannizing over them. That awareness is explosive in country after country. It's explosive in a way that if it is allowed to catalyze explosions across borders in various regions and then also globally, can break down the necessary peace and security that is the precondition for the realization of all of the other interests. And a final, uh, not a final, but my next to final um, world interest is the respect for cultural diversity around the world. This has not been going in the right direction. Okay. Now, we as a country 
have something to contribute to the rest of the world. The e pluribus unum ethos of the United States ought to be what we are projecting around the world rather than a policy of polarization. Now, this requires some restraint on the part of our own human rights groups when it comes to what US official policy should be. It requires some constraint, a bit of patience in dealing with countries whose historical traditions and cultures, for example, don't conform to what we prefer culturally, particularly with respect to how women are treated around the world. For the United States to put itself in the position officially of applying negative sanctions to countries that do not conform to our notions as to how people should live with one another, don't conform to our notions of human rights. For the United States to do that is to alienate a lot of people. Non-governmental organizations are a better agent for pursuing the kinds of dialogue that is needed with peoples who are engaging in, in behaviors that we might consider reprehensible. But it ought not to be at the forefront of statecraft. Here I uh, part with a lot of my liberal friends on grounds of what I regard as a higher realism. Now, infusing all of these national interests, or rather what is necessary to infuse into all of these national interests, is enhancing processes and institutions of transnational accountability. The United States ought to be taking the lead in the world of advancing the international accountability norm, which says simply that those who substantially and intensely and directly affect the well-being and security of others are accountable to those whom they affect and to the larger society whose norms are implicated. These processes and institutions of accountability need to be pursued particularly in areas in which there is a high degree of interdependence that is affecting people, where people are getting in each other's way, where they're getting angry at one another. There is a naive liberal literature on interdependence, which, by the way, conforms to uh, a lot of the uh, neoclassical works in economics that operates under the assumption that greater interdependence will bring peace. We can see around the world that this is not so. Greater interdependence just as often gets people angry at one another. They get in each other's way. They compete for resources that each of them needs. And particularly when exacerbated by global warming, the competition for water resources by those downstream, those upstream, are a kind of interdependence that is going to make for an intensification of conflict. 
But the new norm that the United States should be putting forward, the norms and forms that the United States should be putting forward, are those that enhance the processes and institutions of accountability. This is a package, it appears to me, that the United States could endorse. It requires us to move beyond simple pragmatism. It requires us to move beyond conventional realism to what I've been calling higher realism. Now, that's the basic orientation of the book, okay? to have some awareness of how I think it could be pulled off, okay? of the kinds of uh, mechanisms within the US government that would be necessary, the policy process, of what would be necessary in order to bring about public support for these issues. I think you'll have to read the book. <laughs> so now I'm ready to take um, questions. If you would wait until we have a microphone, because we are podcasting, thanks to Haynes and Boone. We have a question right here, Nancy, in the center table. Thank you very much for your comments. Could you speak to the role of the UN, NATO, and other multinationals in achieving your view of a heightened realism? I think a heightened realism today um, has to move beyond the existing multilateral institutions. Um, they have become cumbersome. The decision-making apparatus in the principal peace and security uh, agency of the United Nations um, is more often than not paralyzed. Because, again, your friend on one issue is going to be an adversary on another issue. Countries, since we've got away from the Cold War, who even were regarded as possibly part of our voting majority in it, if it went into the General Assembly, are no longer uh, that willing to be polarized under our attractive pole. Okay. NATO also is a cumbersome instrument. We're seeing that in Afghanistan, okay. where in order to get a NATO consensus, there had to be a very broad and vague mandate Underneath that mandate, most of the countries that have agreed to participate in some way have attached caveats or their own particular definitions of where they will go, of rules of engagement that they will adhere to. To conduct an effective counterinsurgency, you need unity of command. This simply does not exist. So what we have to begin to experiment with is what I call a modular multilateralism, in which those that are mobilized in a particular endeavor are those who have a sufficient definition of what the common threat is and what a common grand strategy would be. Okay. For some activities, NATO might still be OK. For some activities the United Nations, particularly in the peace and security field, for some, it might be okay. But if you want to be effective, you have to 
build cooperative mechanisms that are not located in either of those institutions in many cases. Professor Hollifield has a question. professors on sabbatical get to ask questions. Um, see him, let me see if I can just play devil's advocate for a minute. I mean, one of the uh, strengths, presumably, of conventional realism is that it gives you a pretty clear map of how you should act. Uh, you know, you're going to have a, a big debate determining what is in our national interest. Obviously, that's a very contentious thing, but once you've got a clear objective, a clear priority, uh, then you have to pursue that, uh, and that is the goal and, and objective of statesmen. Um, so, you know, how do we, you know, how do we find the roadmap on this if we if we start mixing our national interests uh, with all of these world interests? That's the first half of my question. The second one is, there's a theory, as you know very well, in international relations, that nothing will get done. Uh, you cannot achieve the kind of collective action you're talking about without leadership, uh, which means it's often summarized as American hegemony. I think uh, Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State, referred to us as the, uh, uh, what was the term? The indispensable, indispensable power. Richard Haas, uh, Jim Lindsay's former colleague, uh, boss at the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, his boss uh, called us the reluctant sheriff. So, I mean, if we have to lead in order to accomplish these things, and if we don't have this guidepost of the conventional realists, let's not get involved in everything. Let, let's only go after, let's prioritize, and let's go after the things that are in our vital national interest. If we don't have that guidepost, uh, you know, aren't we in danger of becoming overcommitted, overextended, and, of course, making more enemies in the process? I think the risk that you point to is very real. Um, particularly, um, the risk attendant upon the United States continuing to act internationally, although our leadership is necessary, although our participation is indispensable, continuing to act under what I call a double O fallacy of omnipotence and omniscience, not only are we operating, have we been operating under the fallacy that we are all powerful, but also that we are all knowing. Um, what is needed in the dialogue that we have to engage in with respect to what those world interests are that we need all to pursue, okay, what is needed is a posture that dispenses particularly with the fallacy of omniscience. What is needed is a posture of listening and learning, okay, as well as imposing views that come from an arrogant assumption that somehow we have figured out how people should live with each other. We figured it out pretty well in this country, but in many places of the world, it just does not match their traditions and their cultures. They have different notions of what their national interests are. Now, each country, of course, has to start from a concept of its own national interests. What I'm saying here is that the United States, in 
conceiving of its national interests, must factor into that those world interests that need to be pursued in order to serve the national interests. And that's the kind of dialogue that we need with other countries. Let's come to the table, as we have, talking, uh, uh, trying to defend and pursue our own national interests. But there are a group of interests that we all are affected by, that we all need to um, pursue. And it is those that I mentioned, that there, need, there needs to be a dialogue about those national interests. Simply to say that these are national interests does not provide you with sufficient, a sufficient basis for deriving particular policies, and particularly for deriving workable multilateral policies. But we need that kind of a dialogue to take place that at the highest levels between countries with respect to what the common world interests are, with respect to what the global commons requires. So yes, it is more complicated than uh, simply saying we know what our vital national interests are. But it's inescapably imperative that we must do this at the global level as well as the national level. Well, let me take one of our student questions. This is from um, Quinlan Ford High School. And I'm going to reconstruct your question slightly. But the question uh, focuses on the price of oil. And taking your, your premise, how would we encourage, urge a price of oil that was appropriate for the current situation, which <laughs> you know, I might hazard to suggest is 75 to $90? And we've seen that OPEC failed last week in Cairo to reach that. Mm-hmm. So how would higher realism address the price of oil? My initial response is that we ought to uh, be champions of the market here, that let the market of supply and demand determine the price, and other countries adjust to that. Now, not all of the oil producers want to accept that. And so we are in a situation in which market distortion is taking place. But we ought not to be too afraid of that either, because these countries can't drink their oil. It has to get into the market. There will be ranges that are going to make us somewhat uncomfortable. The larger strategy, however, that needs to be pursued, both for environmental reasons as well as for reasons of lessening our dependency upon those who might have hostile uh, 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 definitions of their relationships with us is to get away from dependence on fossil fuels and to have a very serious uh, international collaboration to that effect. A global Manhattan project, so to speak, that marshals resources, the best talents that we have in the scientific and engineering communities uh, to make other non-fossil fuel uh, sources of energy uh, cost-effective and feasible. That's the larger strategy. But in the short term, it appears to me we need to to insist, continue to insist that market mechanisms ought to determine the price. Hi. I applaud your higher realism. (laughs) I agree with all of it. But 
I just wanted to say, anyway, I just wanted to point out about your your theory about that the, due to media communications today that, that the global, you know, the connection with the global democracy, because that is what's creating, I think, so much illegal immigration, which is kind of, I guess, what we thought it was going to be about today. And could you just enlarge on that about how we cope with the illegal immigration that, that global media democracy is, is uh, I think, is creating, don't you? I, I would really like to turn this into a little bit of a seminar right now. But and, you won't be able to sell books if you take too much time. <laughs> no, but what I mean by that is I would like to turn it to my on sabbatical colleague who is one of the country's and world experts on the immigration phenomenon, just to give you a, a slight response. Ed, I'm sorry, I just going to ask you the last question. And then we'll... When we think about globalization and interdependence, there are, I would argue, three pillars to the world in which we live today. One is trade. Everybody understands that's trade and goods and services. Finance and money, if we needed any lessons about how important that is, uh, we could see uh, that the world cannot function without a stable financial and monetary system. But we forget the third pillar of the world we live in today is uh, globalization. The third pillar is migration. And um, you know that's just by way of saying that this is part and parcel of the world in which we live in today. We have to learn how to manage and control immigration. And, and I do think that uh, this fits into CM's framework in the sense that having stable, orderly, and legal migration uh, is in the interests of many countries, the United States being at the forefront of that. So uh, we cannot control it alone. We're going to have to have partners that help us do that. So in this country, that means Mexico. So I think we have to rethink the way we, we manage migration. Uh, and I do think Americans are pragmatic people. Uh, if you have a system that's broken, if you have a problem, uh, you solve it. Uh, if the laws aren't working, uh, you change the laws. Now, I know that may be dodging the question a little bit here. But I do think that we're going to see increased migration for economic reasons and a variety of other reasons. So I think we should make this a more managed, orderly, and legal migration, which means increasing uh, very dramatically the number of visas that we're willing to give to Mexicans uh, for starters. So I'll stop there. Any concluding remarks, sir? Just very briefly. Uh, I'd like to conclude where I started, and that is the recognition that it could be worse but the worst could be disastrous. <laughs> and in order to deal with that and the predicaments that are involved, we need as citizens um, and as sometimes participants in the policy process itself to look beyond conventional realism, to look beyond pragmatism, to insist that this country, once again, um, be animated by a vision of a better world and not simply uh, be so preoccupied with bailing out uh, the world from the terrible situations that it has fallen into. Give a warm hand. <laughs> For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web 
at www.dfwworld.org.